Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Holly Gordon, an earlier guest in season three, said this, Storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. I really love this quote because it perfectly sums up my aspirational goal for this podcast, sharing stories to change you, your leadership, your team, your company. In my work as an executive coach and leadership strategist, I've been super lucky to work with some incredible leaders. This podcast is designed to share their inspiring stories and practical ideas that you can use to develop yourself as a leader and as a person. Thank you so much for supporting me on this podcast. If you've listened to an episode and felt its impact, could you tell someone about it, forward an episode, post about it on social, or text someone who might be interested in listening? If you could share just one, I'd be grateful. Now, on to the show. The Band of Sisters is a tribe of six women, Don Hudson, Angelique Belmer-Krebs, Katie Lacey, Lori Tauber-Marcus, C. Nicholson, and Mitzi Short, who all met when they worked together at PepsiCo. Each of these women are impressively accomplished executives in their own right with a deep bench of experience working in competitive and traditionally male-dominated industries. They have a lot to teach us, and in fact, so much so They recently published a book this fall called You Should Smile More, How to Dismantle Gender Bias in the Workplace. What I love about their new book is how you get a variety of different perspectives and approaches on the same issues many, many women have faced over the course of their careers. Yet they don't just rely on their own experience. They've interviewed women and men to hear about their experiences and perspectives and included these in the book as well. In this final episode of season three, three of the six sisters, Lori, Dawn, and C, generously offer us a taster of their new book. They bring a fresh perspective on improving the lives of women in the workplace in the face of offenses at work that gradually have an outsized impact on women. You'll hear some super practical ways women can respond to gender bias in the workplace and how women and men together can build intentionally inclusive and productive cultures at work. Women have gone through education through an experience of where their kind of work speaks for themselves. If they do a good job, pay attention, and they study for the quiz, they'll probably get a good score on the quiz, and then they'll go to calculus, do a good job, and get a good score, and go to college. And they can put their head down, and their work will speak for themselves. And so that model, after 16 years, worked. It was a meritocracy. Then they get to the work world, and that dynamic doesn't always work. And I think that some cases, they're surprised because they're thinking their work will speak for themselves, and then oftentimes, that's not the case. So often the leader at the top will have a vision and it will be very much for being a gender neutral company that attracts and retains talent. But there's this patterning of things that happened in the past that can get passed down inadvertently, which is why we needed to ask the men in the room to help the women in the room and together create a culture that everybody likes and wants going forward. And of course, what's in it for the leader and for the business is that if you have a better culture, people stay with you and you keep your talent. As a leader, you have to create the environment where people can speak truth to power and speak openly about the things that get in the way of having a great culture. So I think a big takeaway for everybody when you're thinking about this topic is create a way for people to openly and honestly share what might be getting in the way. I am so excited to have three of the Band of Sisters with me, and all six of you met at PepsiCo, but what I'd like to do is have you guys just do like a quick one-minute introduction of each of you and a colleague of yours that isn't here. So Dawn, I'm going to start with you. Hi, I'm Dawn Hudson, and I'm currently serving on corporate boards, on boards of directors. And I really, if I think about my career, I spent most of it at very male-dominated industries and companies, starting with PepsiCo and then going to the NFL. I even went to a college that was 90% men. And I'm introducing my sister, Mitzi Short, who also grew up in very male-dominated part of PepsiCo, which is sales. Very unusual for a woman, let alone a woman of color, to be in the field actively running major retail accounts typically run by men. But she made it to a very senior sales role, and today she's doing a great job of executive coaching. Very good. Thank you, Don. Lori, tell me about yourself and your colleague. Sure. Hi, everybody. Lori Marcus here. So I spent my career in marketing and general management, 
at PepsiCo first and then as a chief marketing officer. And then I had the realization that I was actually ready to sit on the other side of the table and use my skills and my influence and my power and my talent to help other people. So today I sit on corporate boards and I do executive coaching with C-suite executives. I also have the pleasure of introducing my colleague who's not here today, Angelique Belmer-Krems. Angelique also had a wonderful career at PepsiCo in marketing, and then she went on to be the chief marketing officer at News America Marketing, and most recently was in charge of brand marketing at BlackRock. Thank you, Lori. Awesome. And C. Yes. Hello. I'm C. Nicholson. I was at PepsiCo for 11 years. I was the chief marketing officer there. After Pepsi, I was the chief marketing officer at Equinox, and then I also moved to a startup in the fintech space. Today, I'm on a board and then I think the most interesting thing about me is I am on a quest to do handstands all over the world. So that's one of my uh, huge goals. I'm going to introduce Katie Lacey. We overlapped at Pepsi. She was in marketing there. She went on to run marketing for ESPN. And then she was a CEO for Crane Stationery. And today she's doing a bunch of board work. And she's my partner in crime of taking a lot of vacations and enjoying New York City and various islands like Nantucket. I would also add she might be the only other sister who's capable of doing a handstand next to C. <laughs> <laughs> she would argue better for <laughs> I love it. Well, I am so excited to have such really high-powered women who have been through so much in their career and are now giving back to women everywhere and to men. But I don't want to jump ahead. Came together at PepsiCo. That was sort of your main meeting place, right? That was earlier in your career. And now you've moved on to various careers like you've described. And yet you've all stuck together. And you wrote this book, which we're going to talk about. You're giving talks, you're coaching. What brought you together initially at PepsiCo? And like, what's kept you together? <laughs> Don? One of the uh, marvelous things about PepsiCo is that it attracts people who are smart, articulate, but also like to have fun. And it's a challenger culture because for so long, we're always up against Pepsi versus Coke. So it's people that have a little tenacity, who have less fear of failure and willing to try things. So when you meet people at PepsiCo, even today when I meet people who I didn't work with at PepsiCo, or I meet people who preceded me, there tends to be a simpatico because of the types of people that are attracted to PepsiCo. So right away, you're going to like the people that you work with there. Then you add women. Now, when we all grew up at PepsiCo at a time when they were increasing their ranks of women, but there weren't a majority women. And so to be able to work with these women and at PepsiCo, like a lot of other companies, you're not just working in a conference room, but you're going to lunch and then you're doing some things after work and then you might go on trips. And so you naturally form personal relationships in addition to professional ones. And Ours continued as we went on, and we support each other. It's sort of the nature of women in business. I think women today who are successful, it's good if you can bring other women along and help other women. And so we naturally kind of aggregated together as a group that really believed in giving back to our daughters and our friends and other young women climbing the corporate ladder. Awesome. So C and Lori, what would you add to that? What kept you together? It sounds like the culture for sure and that simpatico culture that was there, but what maybe kept you together? I agree with everything that Dawn said. I think then we started doing stuff outside of the office, whether it was Mitzi and Dawn golf, Katie and I used to golf, going to lunches, going to comedy shows. It's extended beyond just the four walls or what used to be the four walls of work. And then I think also we did a good job of even though we weren't formally a band of sisters back then, we I think we did a good job of staying in touch. And like when people would need references or like somebody would say, hey, you're looking for a job or, hey, here's a recommendation for a job or, hey, I'm looking for an accountant. Do you have someone? So I think that people were really good about reaching out. And I know many people on this call have helped each other get jobs or get board positions or. I even set one of us up on a date. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. We went beyond just working together and it became personal. Go ahead, Lori. Yeah. In my executive coaching, I always talk to people about that you want to be the top of somebody else's post-it note. And what that means is, so when recruiters, and this is what happened to me when I was in job transition, when recruiters would call C and she was either gainfully employed or wasn't looking for another CMO role, she would always say, no, I'm not interested in that, but you should call Lori Marcus. And whether it was a real post-it note or virtual post-it note. And I feel like I was able to do the same thing for Angelique when she was in transition 
somebody would call me and I would say, you need to talk to Angelique Cram. She's one of the most talented marketers I know. And so that notion of just always paying it forward in a really natural and generous way, I feel like in its glory days, that's what we learned from PepsiCo. As Dawn said, it was a very externally competitive space, fighting the cola wars, being very competitive in the marketplace. But in our glory days, and I was there for 24 years, and I would say 21 of the 24 were like what I'm about to describe, which was we were externally competitive, but internally we were very generous of spirit and very team-oriented, and that really continued when we left. That's great. So you all came together, stuck together, and then you decided to write a book, (laughs) which is pretty ambitious for one person, but for six people, I don't know if that makes it easier or harder, actually. And maybe you can tell me which that is. But you wrote this amazing book called You Should Smile More, How to Dismantle Gender Bias in the Workplace. Now, why this book and why now? I think like many first-time authors, we didn't set out to, let's go write a book. What we did is, as a group, get together, and we were asked by a few industry functions to come talk about our experiences in corporate America and how we could help the next generation of men and women navigate the culture, improve the culture, and just share our experiences and our learnings and our advice. And we had a really good time doing it, and we got a fair amount of positive feedback. And then COVID hit. So that ended. But we had so much fun and we had so many stories. I believe what happened is we decided, well, let's get together and at least prepare for more of these sessions by writing down and sharing and talking our experiences. So one of them, not me, very organized, set up every week. We would get together and share our stories. And we had an enormous Google Doc and we would then put our stories into the Google Doc. And then we naturally kind of organized them into sort of themes and areas of laughter, areas of conflict, areas of issue, and then talked about how we would handle it. And then COVID kept on going. So at some point we said, well, now we have all of this hundreds of pages of material, perhaps we should write a book. And so that's what led to You Should Smile More. Okay. Very good. By the way, I feel very seen. I feel like my hashtag is calendar invites and Google Docs. So I... <laughs> <laughs> my hashtag was be annoying on the timetable and we should do it faster. My hashtag should be finally got into Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's so amazing about writing a book with people that you know so well that you worked together before and you're also friends and you have this history and stories and you're different, so that you were able to probably keep each other accountable in a way that you couldn't on your own, or even with two of you. That must have been an amazing experience to do that together. Besides having our own shared stories, when we'd be thinking about a topic that would come up, in some cases, we'd be like, oh my gosh, Dawn, remember when we had that blah, 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 we could remind people, because in some cases, you're going back over 30 years of your career. Be like, oh my gosh, that's right. Remember that bother meeting? So we would be able to prompt each other. One story would lead to another story would lead to another. So it's just endless. This is, I would say, something we found in both of our research as well as talking together is there is a similarity of types of experiences that women in particular find themselves in in corporate America. People of diversity, yes, but particularly women. And yet each of us has very different styles and strengths and weaknesses. So we would take a certain situation and not all handle it the same way. We would handle it in a way to get a positive outcome. We would handle it in a way to educate, deflect, whatever you want. So what happened is in identifying these situations, we would have a couple of sister voices saying, here's how I would handle it. I would use humor. I would shift the conversation. And so we hope that our readers don't say there's only one way to handle a situation. And ideally, we want to see these situations diminish. But if they continue, we want to help women figure out how to navigate them. And on one situation, you might identify with Mitzi and another one you might identify with C. So I think that's where there was power in having six voices. That's really important, that whole idea of a different style. We think, oh, I'm a woman and therefore I have to be really aggressive or I have to be this or I have to be that because I think that's in my head what I need to do in an environment or a culture where I'm not feeling seen or I'm not feeling like I fully belong. And I love the fact that your book and just the work that you guys have been doing together offers a lot of different ways, a lot of different options and choices that people have so that you can still be authentic to who you are. I assume that that's what you've been aiming for. Yeah. 
what's interesting is I would say this book is the definition of something that came together very organically. As C and Dawn said, we didn't sit out with a business plan to say we're going to write a book. We didn't say, oh, we're going to have six points of view or five points of view on each topic. As Dawn said, when we put the different scenarios into the Google Doc, I sometimes feel like our book is just a big advertisement for Google. (laughs) Note this, we should get sponsored by Google. When we put into the Google Doc the different scenarios, two things happened. One was when you started writing down the advice of what women should do. So first thing that happened was, as C and Dawn said, we realized we didn't agree on everything and that was wonderful. Sometimes we had very divergent point of views. Sometimes we had nuanced point of views, but the fact that we had different point of views was really strong, really powerful, and I think really good. But the second thing that happened when you see it in writing is we decided we didn't want to write another book where we put the burden on women to solve all the issues. So what do you do if you're asked to being take the notes? What do you do if you're asked to smile more? What do you do if you're asked to do housework around the office? We realized as we looked at it, we didn't want to just have a book that was telling women how they could solve it. And so quickly looking at it on paper or on the computer, it became obvious that we also needed to speak to bystanders who were in the room, be they men or women, how to turn bystanders into allies. And then also that there's no way you're going to make change if you don't bring men and specifically white men who are in charge, if you don't bring them into the conversation. So what started as a book, you know, bullseye target women in the workplace, call it ages 25 to 40, not in your first job, but where you're really starting to notice some of these things quickly brought in to say that's still the bullseye target, but it's also for allies and for bosses, be they men or women. Which is why you have the title of that book as it is, I imagine, right? How to dismantle gender bias in the workplace, because there's probably a lot of men who want to do that too, not just women. So you're appealing to that as well. I think also that the curiosity we had when we came together, our greatest fear was that we were going to be writing a book about old times and it wouldn't be relevant to today. So it was really important for us and, in fact, a little shocking to us to find out that in many of the situations that we dealt with still exist today. They might be actually even more subtle and hard to deal with than when we were forming our careers. But the other observation I make is that people come out of college and business school today used to very 50-50, if not majority women situations, and dealing with each other very equally. Yet there's something about when you join a corporation, there's a culture And it's passed down through decades. So often the leader at the top will have a vision and it will be very much for being a gender neutral company that attracts and retains talent. And the people coming in are used to that environment. But in the middle, there's this patterning of things that happened in the past that can get passed down inadvertently. And so things that you don't expect to find, you continue to find and they continue to kind of live on, which is why we felt we needed to ask the men in the room to help the women in the room and together create a culture that everybody likes and wants going forward. And of course, what's in it for the leader and for the business is that if you have a better culture, people stay with you and you keep your talent. Don, I think you're bringing up a great point because this whole idea of culture gets to the root cause, Mm -hmm. the root Mm -hmm. issue. So what you're not wanting to do is have a lot of topical advice for women. You want to get to the root cause of the culture and how do you get to that? both as women and as men, that doesn't just put the responsibility on women, but is a collective community effort, (laughs) right, Mm -hmm. around that, which should be better for everybody. I assume that that's the idea. Just building what Dawn said, I mean, she referenced the research. So we went out and we interviewed hundreds of women and men, younger women, and trying to understand the issues that we are talking about, were they still relevant today? Because the ones that we put in the book and that we talk about indeed are still relevant today. And I think that was one of the biggest things that was interesting to me was that the younger people today, in some cases, are almost less equipped to deal with it because of the fact that their expectations are higher. There's Title IX, they, they were class presidents, they went to good colleges, whatever. Whereas in our generation, it was you went to business school and 20% of your class was women and it was 80% with men. And men were the ones that were the class president and leading all the internships. And we were more trying to fit into that world, whereas Young women and girls today come into the worker situation thinking they got the world by the tail and they're probably doing better than some of the guys. And yet that can kind of flip. 
their expectations are different. Our expectations were pretty low going into it. And we knew we had to get along to fit in. So I thought that was one of my big, interesting eurekas in all these interviews that we did. I'd like to unpack that a little bit because I think that's really interesting. And I'm curious about how did that show up? Did that show up as like exasperation and impatience? And did you see a variety of responses? Yeah. What I found with most of the women that I interviewed, they came into the call and we went through, in some cases, 10 scenarios. In some cases, I had an hour and I probably went through 25 scenarios. And we were trying to figure out, A, as he said, does this resonate? Is this still a thing? Or are we writing a book about stories that were relevant 20 years ago? So we wanted to find out if it was still relevant. And then if so, how do you deal with it? Because we didn't want the advice to just be from the six of us. We wanted to get advice from young and up and coming women as well. So I think what's interesting is I found in each of them, it was like people came in, they weren't angry, they weren't like ready for bear. And as you started on going through the scenarios, what you'd have is you'd have just this instant, I'd say the, the, the words like the cellophane standoff and they'd see the, the visual. And before I could even say, you know, when there's catering at a meeting and the men will wait until noon before they think to unwrap the bagels, before I could even say the one line description, they'd go, Oh my God. Or, you know, the title of the book, you should smile more. And before you could even get the words out, people would say, Oh my God, if I had a dollar for every time I was told to smile more, do this more, that more. So what was interesting was the instant recognition, whether you're talking to women who are 25 or 35 or 45 or 55, literally it was instant recognition, but also just a little bit of humor and exasperation combined. And then the second thing, and I wish I had a a word to describe this is what's the thing called when you think you're the only one that experiences something and then somebody else opens it up So I'll give you an example. One of the chapters in the book is about counting the room. And we all do it. You're in a room. There's seven people in the meeting. You're the only woman, one out of seven, 14%. Most of the women that we talked to, they thought they were the only one that noticed this. So they thought they were the only one that was counting the room. They thought they were the only woman who was being asked to take the notes. And they thought, well, maybe it's just because I'm junior. They thought they were the only woman who got asked to plan the parties versus be on the business development task forces. And so there was something that was really almost like this connection with people and a joy when they realized, okay, it doesn't make me happier to know that it exists, but it does make me feel a little better to know that I'm not the only one that experiences this. That's right. Yeah, exactly. See, go ahead. The other thing that I would add, because I agree with what Lori said, is that the younger they went, if they were really right out of school, and sometimes when you'd ask them certain situations, they'd be like, yeah, that happens, but I think it's because I'm junior. Right. They'd be like, well, I, yeah, I took the notes, but maybe the most junior person does the notes. And that probably is more true. But then they'd be like, well, yeah, but it's junior and it's generally female. Or it's like, oh, yeah, I was asked to set up the next Zoom meeting. And yeah, I'm junior, but I'm also. And so they, I think that would kind of eureka went off. And as you get a few years into it, you start realizing there's more. And some of these things, there's more of a gender bias versus that's just what the junior people have done. So you definitely saw that change as they go on from 22 to 25. If you're a leader of a unit or division of a company, and you think about you bring a lot of young talent in, and then you work hard to train that talent and give them experiences and develop them, you start to get the payoff just about the time that they are waking up to the fact that there are uncomfortable situations. So again, to us, it's a huge opportunity to really turn it and make sure that these people feel that they're contributing to culture, that they are welcome. We all know you got to work for a great boss, you got to be paid fairly, but you got to feel like you can bring your whole self to work and you can feel comfortable. And in the end, if you don't feel good about where you go to work, you're not going to stay there. I wanted to add what's been interesting to me, Winnie, is sharing. So we got three copies of the book in paperback form before the hardcovers were published. And I had a few male friends, courageous friends, because this was written not to be a Me Too, Point Your Finger, angry book. It was written to be a Help Us, Let Us Educate You book. Nonetheless, men are sometimes a little shy, but they picked up the book and said, one of my friends who's an attorney said, I have four daughters, I need to read this. And so he read it cover to cover, frankly, more engrossed, I think, than women. Women are nodding. He's like, oh my God, I'm learning something. And at the end, he said, Dawn, he said, I learned so much. I had no idea, but I'll never again call you a girl. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> That's amazing. And the reason I asked that question is because some of the women that I've been working with who are more junior, I mean, more junior, meaning like probably 35, maybe mid-career. And I feel like there's a real impatience coming from them feeling like, I'm done with this. I'm not waiting. I'm not figuring this out. And yet on the other side of that, in particular, I'm thinking of a woman at an investment bank that I worked with, but her like boss's boss's boss, who then called me and said, help me figure this out and talk to me about this. And it's kind of similar. He's got daughters. His younger daughters are telling him, dad, (laughs) you need to be aware of X, right? And so he was really in a, I felt like in a really open learning mode as I was explaining to him where she was coming from and what was happening maybe from a cultural standpoint in the company that wasn't necessarily about him or her, but back to that culture piece. That's why I was wondering about that because I think that's such an interesting point that things are the same, but they're almost worse in some ways because they're more subtle and underground. And yet, how do you root those out? And what should women do if they're frustrated? What's happened during COVID is people have realized they have more choices. Yes. Choices in how and where they work, choices in whether they work for a big company or a smaller company. It's still been a good job market. And so we've been a little surprised that a lot of companies have been very focused on physically how to get people back to the office. How many days a week can you work remotely Monday and Friday? Yet we sort of feel the conversation really should be around there's been a change in learning on the part of your employee base. How do you use that to galvanize what culture you want to make sure you drive your company and you keep your best talent going forward? And we're not actually hearing as many conversations around culture as opposed to the functionality of a physical space. And yet this is a moment and it's a moment where people can vote with their feet and walk elsewhere. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about that with you guys for a minute, because there's this whole idea of the hybrid workplace, this pull from the C-suite, I think C-suite full of men who are saying we need to be back in the office. And then juxtapose that with the New York Times article that just came out about women and childcare being so expensive and not available. And then elder care, same thing. And women being sandwiched in between that. What's come up around that in terms of how women navigate that right now? Because I feel like this is such a timely thing that's going on in our society right now. There's things that are sort of common to men, women, other in terms of like long commute, the price of gas, having to buy lunch out, things like that. Like there's things that are just common to everyone that's kind of a topic of conversation and resonates with everyone and something for companies to solve. I feel like what is the more nuanced thing, to your point, Winnie, is some of these things that I would say the general population doesn't necessarily experience, but women, and especially women of color, really experience, which is they feel like when they go back to the workplace, so many of those little micro moments or microaggressions come out. So people judging you based on what you wear and you should smile more and how you walk and how you talk and all of those sort of superficial things. So I think that there's a bigger set of issues beyond even childcare, elder care, and things like that. Some of the more nuanced things that happen in a workplace, we talk about cellophane standoff and being asked to do quote unquote housework at work. Things like if you're in a meeting and you see the men will just like get up and they'll leave their little plate there with the cake on it or the bagel on it, whatever. And women have just been trained. Like you don't leave a conference room with food all over it. So you're putting the diet Pepsi cans in the recycling bin and you're throwing the paper plates in the garbage. So it's little things like that. I feel like many more of the micro moments come out when you're back at the workplace. So I think the way that I would frame it is there's an additional set of things that are on women and probably especially women of color's mind as they go back to the workplace. Don and C, do you guys have any thoughts on this whole idea of back to work and hybrid? And I'll give you just a small example. I think companies are thinking about this and they want to add flexibility. But I was speaking with a friend of mine who's the CEO of a very, very large company. And he was relating to me that he had a conversation at a lunch table with an employee he didn't know well. But that employee had the confidence to share with him that prior to COVID, she would be in the office every day at eight when the meeting started, and she would miss seeing her child off to school. And during COVID, she realized what a special moment it was to walk her child 
down the street to the bus stop and put the child on the bus. So she said to him and had the confidence to say, the thing that's changed for me is I'm not going to miss that anymore. I will work every bit as hard for you, but I'm going to do that and I'm going to be in the office at nine, not at eight. Of course, that was no problem. He wants to have a culture like that. And I think most leaders do too. But as companies are working hard to get employees physically comfortable with going back in the office, and some industries more than others really benefit from that collaboration that happens in the office, finding a way to do it that still provides heightened flexibility, not just in terms of which day you have to be in the office, but how you come in, when you come in, to recognize that there are little moments and they're different for every person. For me, if I were going back in the office, it's I'm taking care of an elderly mother and I have to be available certain times to go to the doctor with her, not just physically to get her there, but to be another pair of eyes and ears and frankly, to help not have age bias occur in our medical system. So each person's different. It's an opportunity for corporate America. I really love that story. I mean, that like almost brought tears to my eyes. And I think what's really powerful about that story is that there's policy and then there's people. And that probably for that CEO to hear that story and the way you relate it was so confident and factual. (laughs) You're not blaming. You're not upset. You're just like, this is what I learned. And these are the choices that I'm going to make. And I just want you to know. And I just love that. And so that I bet for that CEO, that to him was like, a story and a person behind potentially a policy, right? And that is so powerful because I think that's what we get caught up in, even as leaders, even as women. We got to set a policy. We got to figure out what we all have to do. And so where do we create a situation where we trust people? We are hiring people, really good people, and we trust them to do really great work in a way that's going to work for them. That's probably the challenge. Women or men, doesn't matter. Yeah, I just think what's interesting is when you become senior, regardless of your gender, it's just easy to get out of touch, right? You have more things available. It's easier. The real estate near the office is usually more expensive. You're paid more when you're a more senior person. You're able to be there. You're able to probably afford to have more flexible childcare situations. That's not a man or a woman issue. That's just as you become more senior, two things happen. One is that happens. And then the second is, as my daughter reminds me, everyone laughs at your jokes. Everyone pretends that your stories are interesting because they all work for you. So that's just a little bit for all leaders. It's very easy to become a little bit out of touch. And you you sort of have to catch yourself when you come back Monday morning and you're talking about how you just came back from Europe and Nantucket or whatever. And you have to remember that there are people on your team who don't have the money or the wherewithal to do that. So that's just a general comment, nothing to do with this book. The thing that has to do with this book and this topic is as a leader, you have to create the environment where people can speak truth to power and speak openly about the things that get in the way of having a great culture. And it feels like for Dawn's friend, whether that person knew it or not, they had created the environment where a confident woman could speak up and say something. But we've all worked in companies where people say, speak truth to power, and then flack. As soon as you do, you just get put back in your place, which tells you that person had no interest in really learning. So I think a big takeaway for everybody when you're thinking about this topic is create a way for people to openly and honestly share what might be getting in the way. And if you haven't yet created the kind of environment like Dawn's friend where people can say it to you, then have somebody else. We do this in executive coaching. We do it as the band of sisters. Have somebody else do 360 one-on-one interviews and really get to what are the issues that get in the way. And in this case, it might be the difference from meetings starting at eight o'clock in person versus starting at nine o'clock. They're usually going to be really small things, but the good news about that is they're also easy to change or adapt. I'm kind of curious for you guys, having your careers, getting together, writing this book, you did a bunch of listening sessions, talked to a bunch of people. I assume you've been doing, continuing your speaking engagements, talking to people, engaging on this topic. What have you guys learned that's new and different or an aha moment or just stuck with you? throughout this process? 
that women have gone through education through an experience of where their kind of work speaks for themselves. If they do a good job, pay attention, and they study for the quiz, they'll probably get a good score on the quiz, and then they'll go to calculus, do a good job, and get a good score, and go to college. And they can put their head down, and their work will speak for themselves. And so that model, after 16 years, worked. Again, even if they weren't the most popular person, they weren't the big man on campus, but they were going to end up having a higher SAT score than the big man on campus, even if he was more popular. It was a meritocracy. Then they get to the work world and that dynamic doesn't always work. A lot of times it's all this, these intangibles and who you know and kind of relationships and all these different dynamics that happen. And I think that some cases they're surprised because they're thinking, well, if I just put my head down and I'll just work harder, I'm not going to attend that thing, but I'm just going to get one more thing done. I think they think their work will speak for themselves. And oftentimes that's not the case. Yeah, that's a really good example. The other thing that I noticed about that is especially for high-powered women who have been to like brand-name colleges, brand-name graduate school, there's this sense of my path has been set for me for a long time, and I chose it, but I didn't really think about it very much. And then they reach a point in their career where it's like, you know what? I'm not sure what I want to do anymore. And I know this is a little bit different as it relates to what you were talking about, but I think that there is a relationship because it's not just the work isn't speaking for myself. In some ways, I think there's an element of like, now what do I do? (laughs) If the work isn't speaking for itself, and now I'm not even sure if I like this work, what do I do? There's a whole element of letting women say, I don't have to even be good at something to say I want to do it and I'm going to pursue it and do it anyway. And I think that that's a missing thing that women have more so than men. Some men still have that. That's an observation that I've had in working with my clients. Lori and Don, what about you guys? What aha moments have you had or what have you learned? Yeah, so I think for me, the biggest thing that surprised me, I guess, or what I learned was how pervasive all of these scenarios still are. So I thought when we went out, we probably had, I don't know, call it 35 scenarios. And in the back of my mind, I thought, well, half of them won't be relevant anymore. Like we'll road test them with these younger women and they'll say, no, that's not really a thing. That doesn't happen anymore. And so I think probably of the 33, just looking, the book has 31 chapters in it. And every time we go out and we interview women, it's like user-generated content on steroids. Like they're like, can I give you another scenario? And I'm like, all right, I got to start a new Google Doc for the next book because people have so much that they want to share. So I think point number one for me was I was just surprised. It's a little bit more nuanced, but I was surprised how many of these scenarios were still happening and they were still just like bricks on the shoulders of these women. I was surprised when I went out and I interviewed my male colleagues and former male bosses. And the thing, if I were recording those conversations, what that sounded like on the other end was like, huh, I didn't know that happened. Again, no, no ill intent, nothing conscious, but they were like, huh, I didn't know that was a thing. And so I think what's interesting is that sort of juxtaposition with on one hand, women are just telling you, yep, this still happens. Strip clubs might be now it's not being invited out to trivia night or going up to the whiteboard and writing, hey, I have a thought is replaced by putting notes in the chat on Zoom, but it's still there. But on the flip side, that notion, as I talked to men, they were like, huh, I didn't know that was a thing. And of course, my thought was, what do you talk about at dinner, if not this? (laughs) Right. Go ahead. I was surprised. We did obviously a lot of these conversations in a complete Zoom world. And we're an advertisement for Zoom, by the way, (laughs) because we wrote our book on Zoom. But that a lot of these little mini moments happened as well in a Zoom culture. So I'll give you some examples. Counting the room happened on Zoom. The inability to get heard, you could raise your hand, but the importance of a leader making sure that everyone on that Zoom call is in fact participating, same kind of dynamics. And then I heard from one of the people, the women that I interviewed who happened to be like eight months pregnant. Now she's working right up to her due date. She's up for a promotion. She's working hard. And again, I think the boss meant nothing ill out of it. But at the end of the Zoom call, he said, why don't you stand up and show us? And she was taken aback. You want to see how pregnant I am, which is going to make people look at me as a whale about to give birth, not somebody contributing to this project right now. It was a small little thing, 
that it was very uncomfortable for her. So I think some of my learnings and takeaways were can't just assume zoom, zoom, and we're going to work on all these things when we go into the office. You're still doing a lot of virtual work. And how do you bring that culture into a virtual space as well? Yeah, it all comes back to that culture again. So think about the people listening to you right now, the men and the women who are are tuning in really stands out as like, oh, this is a good one for people to know about. One of the chapters is about the subtle language of he's a great guy when you evaluate men, he's part of the club. And they're given credit for their capability and what they could do in the future. And you never hear the corollary of she's just a fabulous person or she's a great gal. You don't hear that. You hear, has she literally done all the things we need her to show that she has done before she gets that promotion? Yeah. It's sort of potential versus results. So men get a lot of credit for potential. He's a great guy. We know him from Sigma Chi. We know him from Choate. This sweeping language that is about sort of their general demeanor and also their potential. Whereas when you talk about women, Again, I don't think people do this on purpose, but they immediately go to what has she achieved? Did she write a strategic plan? Has she developed others? As Dawn mentioned earlier, a lot of these things, and again, we focus a lot on the power of language as a way to try and describe some of these things. But one of the examples that I would give, and again, I know it's unconscious, but you know what? It doesn't excuse it. And on one of my boards, we were looking to hire a new board director. I was fairly new in my tenure on the board. So I was kind of getting my sea legs in terms of how comfortable I felt standing up and speaking loudly. And I, I was the only woman on the board as well. Anyway, we had engaged a search firm and we were looking at a group of candidates and we had insisted that the slate be diverse. So at this point, we were looking at three men and three women who were in the quote unquote final round. And as we were going through the candidates with the recruiter, one of my colleagues on the board, for every woman, when the recruiter was talking about the job changes she had made, my fellow board director would say, well, did she leave that job on purpose or was she fired or asked to leave from the job? He asked it every time for the women and he didn't ask it at all for the men. He would say, oh, what did they do next? And where did they go next? And what was their next job? And it was very positive. And I know for a fact he wasn't doing it on purpose. But again, here I am, I'm a month or two into my tenure on the board, and I'm the only woman. And to part of you, you're having that debate in your head about, do I say something? So I just decided when you're in the room where it happens, you have to take your shot. You have to go from being a bystander to an ally, insert your language here. And so what I said, I think very professionally, I said, John, not his real name, you may not realize this, but for each of the women, we're asking about why they left the job and we're not doing the same thing for the men. So I think we just need to make a decision. Let's either ask it for everyone or ask it for no one. And the second the word came out of the mouth, I got a text from <laughs> the CEO of the company who was also on the call. And he said, that is the most valuable thing I have ever heard from one of our board members. So it was a lesson for a lot of things. It was a reminder about how this stuff shows up every day in every way. But it was also a reminder when you're in the room, there's power in just being the room. You don't have to be the boss. I wasn't the chairperson of the board. I wasn't the lead independent director. But if you are in the room, you have to use your access as power. What's interesting about that story was there's this tension between the burden being on women to call those things out and to keep track of them and to say them in a way that people can hear it. I'm sure women of color and men of color go through this too, right? And so there is that tension of, wow, this is really exhausting because there's an emotional load, I feel like, to that. Doesn't mean that you don't do it, <laughs> but there is kind of a burden to it as well. Yes. And what I wish, it's funny, I'm in the process of writing an article about how to develop men as allies. And what I wish, if you said, well, how would you want that story to have ended? What I would have loved if after the call had John said to me, hey, Lori, you brought up a really interesting point on the call. I didn't realize that. What else don't I realize? Or even if the CEO would have said that. Exactly. Because you want to take the burden off of, again, women, people who are in underrepresented minorities, we want to take the burden off of us having to carry sort of all of the load. You're exactly right. 
there's a corollary situation. Again, it's not intentional, but it happens. And it's actually a chapter in the book separate where there'll be a job opportunity in a different location. And it'll be a promotion and a real step up. And a comment will be made, well, she's got two kids, her husband works. Assumption, she cannot move and be considered for that job. Where Joe Blow here, his wife doesn't work, he'd be a good candidate. Stop, stop, do not make that assumption. Let the woman decide whether she wants to be in the slate of candidates or not. Happens a lot. And then the other thing that's subtle around this male-female roles is he's a great dad. A father that has to leave a meeting early because he's going to go and cheer on his daughter at her soccer match. And he gets great accolades. In the same situation, a woman has to leave to go cheer on her daughter at the soccer match. She's got her priorities wrong. Yeah, that first story you told about what the spouse is doing and not doing, and this really relates back to culture. So I have a friend who's a male, and he's actually a coach, and his wife is in the C-suite of a company. And she was talking to her husband and saying, oh, I'm considering this woman who he knows because she used to work for her, but she just had a baby. I don't know if it's a good time. And he had to call his wife on that, right? So it was her doing that. But that just tells us about culture, right? And so when you step into that leadership role and you take on the mantle (laughs) of that culture, you just, without thinking, those are the things that come out of your mouth. I can remember when people planning meetings, exactly that same thing. Both men and women can make these comments about other women. But I think it's interesting when it's two people that are professionals that have spouses that are professionals. So it's not even like, well, this person's got a husband's got a big job in finance. I don't think they'll move. And this person's maybe a homemaker, in some cases, it's the exact same situation. They both have spouses that are both working. But they will assume that the woman would leave her career for the man. That's right. And the assumption is the man would not leave his career for the woman. That's right. Right. You have so many households where the woman is the primary wage earner. Right. We have no idea. Maybe they're about to go through a divorce. Maybe they want to get to the West Coast. No idea what their situation is. They might be thrilled to be able to you know, get out of New York. That's right. Mm-hmm. Winnie, I love your story because I love the fact that it reinforces that it's not like women are perfect and men have it all wrong. As I said before, when you get to be senior, you just get a little unconscious about some of this stuff. Your day is filled with other things. And if you don't create the environment, in this case, it was this woman's husband, but where other people feel comfortable saying things, you're just going to become part of the problem. I've always been sort of a zealot for these things. I've always been a feminist. I've always really tried to be very vocal about these things. And when I was working up at Cura Green Mountain, I live in Connecticut, but I was working up in Boston. It was before Zoom. So I was up there four days a week, every week. And I basically had no life. I was just at the office all day. And then I'd go back to the hotel at eight o'clock at night. And so there was one day where I was trying to have a meeting with a woman on my team. And of course, the day was filled with meetings. I was like, okay, uh, get back to my office. I said, I should be back at my office by like six or so. Does that work for you? And again, didn't even think about it. She took a breath, she took another breath. We're on the phone. And she finally said, I, I need to leave at 515 to get my kids from daycare. We live pretty far North, close to the New Hampshire border. Would it be possible to do the call with you either on a phone call or maybe tomorrow? I felt like such a Dumb, dumb, because here I was just not thinking about it. I have no life. I'm at the office still, whatever. My family's in Connecticut. I didn't even think about it. And I was totally apologetic, but it was a really good reminder to me that you just get out of touch no matter how hard you try. You get out of touch when you're senior. And if you don't put mechanisms in place where people feel comfortable saying to you what's actually on their mind, you've just become part of the problem. And credit to you, Lori, because she felt comfortable to say that. There would be many a similar situation where that would not get raised and she would have been there at six and it would have caused great consternation in her life to get coverage for the kids to be picked up. And she'd remember that way longer than you would. That's right. What's hopeful? What's hopeful about the future that you would like to say a few words about or that you're looking at as we all move forward and as you are hopefully influencing people? See, go ahead. We've heard back from several guys, but there's two examples of situations that they were in that they won't do again. One was somebody had to work on the weekend for some big media event. So they were all in the office and the senior guy almost turned to one of his very senior colleagues to say, oh, you know, hey, Joan, who's watching your kids this weekend? And he thought, I'm not asking Ted 
who's watching his kids and they're in the exact same situation. So he caught himself before he other Joan and be like, well, who's taking care of your kids? Yeah. So he, he thought, gosh, I do that all the time. And thinking he's being polite and asking and inquisitive and, and asking about someone's family. So he caught himself. He said he wouldn't do that. And I thought that was a good insight. And then just actually just yesterday, we were on a call and somebody was given the example of when somebody had won some award and they were going over to congratulate the woman. He's like, I handed her the award and I put my hand on her back and was like, oh my gosh, congratulations. And he thought, I would never do that to a man. I would just hand him the award. I wouldn't then kind of touch no. it back. So they're now kind of putting the filter, like, would I do that if it was a man? And I feel like that's some of the things we want to kind of bring to the surface. So, so people think about it. So uh, stuff like that makes me hopeful. So what's hopeful is that in having these conversations, men in particular, the examples that you gave are wanting to see some things and they're willing to make some changes. Don and Lori, what about you? What do you find to be hopeful? I'll build on C's point about how men are noticing these things. Again, the good thing about tackling micro moments or microaggressions is they are micro. So you can make small changes that have big impact. And so if you think about many people making very easy changes, like that's not a hard thing to not ask Joan who's watching her kids, right? That is not a hard thing to do. But think about if hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are having those thoughts hundreds of times a day, like you actually can have an impact. And what I'm optimistic about is just how many people want to bring men into the conversation. So one of our clients is doing like a book club where it's kind of a power pairs thing or like bring an ally to work with you. And so everybody is taking the spirit of what we're doing. This isn't to scream at men and tell them they're terrible. This is a give practical ways for all of us to create awareness and then do a better job. And so I'm super optimistic about how people are wanting to bring men into the conversation and men are saying, great, let's do that. This is something we can all do better at. Exactly. Don, what about you? Much the same thoughts as C and Lori. I look at it through the lens of the next generations, the millennials and the Gen Zs. They've grown up in a different time. They have a different perception of what they want. They are more able to take choices, make choices, talk about it. And I think that that makes them much more willing participants in having these conversations across the sexes, across diversity, across companies. And it's not as hard as it once was to get these conversations going and have really willing participants. So I'm really hopeful for the future. Awesome. I love that people who are interested can hear more when they read the book. Thank you so much for taking the time. Loved hearing all your stories. So thank you. Thanks, Winnie. Thank you, Winnie. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much.